Ladies and gentlemen, welcome back to Broken Oars Podcast. And we have a particularly special and particularly esteemed guest with us, Kath Bishop, multiple world medalist, Olympic silver medalist, and as I will be bringing up later, four-time British indoor rowing champion and world indoor rowing champion. Welcome to the podcast. Thank you so much for coming on. Oh yeah, great to be here. Really good. I'm slightly terrified about the questions coming up, but uh, mostly glad to be here. I'm going to leap straight on that in, in my usual intermittent. How can you be worried about the questions of, of two chances like us when you've worked in conflict resolution and diplomacy? There is literally nothing we can ask you that you will not be able to, to bat back with a straight bat. Are you going to remind me of all those negotiations with war criminals and the like? Wouldn't like to, but we'll probably get to it at some point, yes. <laughs> Obviously, you have one of the more impressive rowing careers that anyone's ever likely to see. But you also have, after that, what seems like an absolutely stellar civilian career. Is this something that has anything to do with rowers or are you just like a remarkably multiply talented individual well i think it's it's common that rowers often have not had to sacrifice their education along the way and in fact the education has been part of a fantastic rowing opportunity and that was certainly the case for me um but you know i i was just really fortunate i guess that i had yeah i already had this aspiration to go into diplomacy before i started rowing so people often say how did a rower become a diplomat but it's more like how did someone who really really wanted to become a diplomat end up spending 10 to 15 years of their life trying to go backwards in a boat as fast as possible before then pursuing that path so that was something i'd always been interested in and that was linked to what i studied with languages and international politics and so I just always had that ambition uh, in my life. And that really was the bigger ambition going to university before I didn't step in a boat or had any kind of sporting aspiration. A lot of rowers will probably recognise that for some personality types, rowing can be a much more satisfying alternative to real life than real life actually is. It's, it, it has a very comforting uh, routine and there, there are certainties throughout the season. And you often find people not wanting to leave the sport and kind of get on with the with the next bit. But it almost sounds like um, you've done it the other way around. You wanted to get on with the next bit and you kind of got sidetracked by the rowing. For those who don't know you or who don't know your kind of trajectory, how did you get into the sport in the first place? Very accidentally. And that probably is also part of, I think, moving on you know, maybe feeling a bit of imposter syndrome throughout. I wasn't really meant to be here. I wasn't very sporty at school. And that isn't unusual amongst us slightly tall, not always the most coordinated people in the world on when standing up on two feet. Um, but I was definitely, you know, at school did not excel. And I have the school reports to um, prove that in my PE lessons. And so to get involved at any level of sport at university was unlikely, unexpected and unintended for for that involvement in a sport to end up getting to an Olympic level was just slightly bizarre, really. And I don't think I've ever quite rationalised what happened there. And so I, you know, I think I always felt I was passing through and perhaps didn't always belong. 
And that was also, I think, you know, obviously, I, I, you know, 10 years of being an Olympian is fairly intense. I was definitely ready for something else by that point. I'm going to leap in again, Lewin, and you'll find <laughs> as we go on, Kath, that, that, that um, one of the reasons why the North was harried uh, back in the old days was because of gobby people like myself jumping in when our elders and betters should be asking the questions. But we had Andy Hodge on recently. And we were talking about university programs becoming more selective. And obviously, Andy got into rowing through staffs, and and he's he's described um, a, probably a, a similar sort of trajectory at school, and fi- he really found something in rowing that resonated with him. We've had a chat with people like Rory Copus, and we are aware that a lot of the the Russell Group universities and, so, and some of the the more Thames based um, newer universities are often selling courses on the back of their high-performance rowing programs, which makes it far more selective. And Rory Copus was very blunt in saying that, you know, if you don't have these scores, don't come to Oxford Brooks to to find out about rowing. Were there those barriers to entry when you did it, or was it very much a case of kind of rocking up? Uh, you know, Andy talked about the, the free pizza and have a go on an urgency if you're all right sort of thing. I am it. delighted to say there were no barriers to entry and I would have taken one look at a programme like that and walked an absolute mile. I would never have been able to envisage myself being able to do that, having sort of failed a, a state school sport, if you like. So I am entirely grateful that I just had an introduction to the sport for what it is, a beautiful opportunity to be on a river with other people trying to put all your effort in together and, you know, and working our way out. And I think actually my longevity in the sport, my ongoing love for the sport, despite some pretty brutal times, is because I basically fell in love with the sport for what it was without any aspirations that I would have to win, that I would win medals or anything else. I just loved rowing for what it was. And that was, you know, the most, you know, the most lovely thing, the most transformational thing, something I still enjoy. Uh, But it also really helped me that I could still connect with that, even in the sort of midst of days when I thought, right, I'm probably about to be binned or I just can't hack it anymore. You know, I still, there was a part of me that just went, do you know what? I still really love being out on the river though. And they can't take that from me, <laughs> even if I'm too slow or or whatever. And so I wonder if I'd had that, if I'd gone steaming into a program that was sort of performance driven, it would frankly have frightened me off. And it slightly worries me that it attracts certain personality types and that you lose others. I would definitely have been discarded um, for not probably being mentally tough enough or something like that by being frightened by it. I mean, there was a point sort of early on. So, you know, I, I didn't sign up to row with the big novice thing at Cambridge because I thought, well, that looks full on and it involves getting up really, really early. And that wasn't my sort of student plan. And, you know, I got roped in a few weeks in when, you know, people who were becoming friends were all doing it. And they were a person short for the novice race at the end of term. They just needed an eighth bum on a seat with three weeks to go. And they'd ask quite a few other people. So, you know, a bit of bribery sort of was like, come on, just just give it a go. And, and I was curious because it looked like they were having enormous fun. I thought, I don't think I've ever experienced anything like that. And so, you know, I just tried that, had in absolute enormous fun. I mean, really, really loved it. Loved the whole skill learning piece as well. And the next term, you know, we decided we wanted to carry on. And actually other people in the college said, do you want to try out for the next boat? Because, you know, you've only done it a few weeks, you know, you look decent. And I went, no, I want to stay with my friends. Now that in a high performance environment would be absolutely looked down upon, would be seen as, 
I don't know, you know, recreational tomfoolery. Um, and, you know, I, I think that's a bit of a shame because I think we potentially lose people out of the sport who want to go in a different path, who maybe take a little bit longer. And, uh, you know, it, it makes me nervous. I don't think Lewin had this problem because he, he has he has fierce proper erg scores, as I like to call them. But back when we were rowing at Agecroft, uh, we had a boat with uh, Ben Charles, Ali Chapman, uh, Mark Hancock, names that will mean nothing to you, Kath, but, but wonderful people and wonderful rowers. And obviously Dennis was in charge of the programme then, and we'd done enough for him to email us and say, look, do you want to start training with, with the first eight squad? We all got the email separately and we all responded without actually knowing that the, the others had done it, we all said, actually, no, we want to stay in our boat because we really enjoy it. We made it again to Henley, but I, I think it kind of got where we were coming from. And there is a huge amount to be gained from the right group of people in the right place at the right time. It, it is, it's a very interesting perspective from me because I got tapped on the shoulder in the gym after thrashing away inexpertly on a rowing machine for 15 minutes. Go to Norwich Trout's Rowing Club. Um, and that, that was about that was 2002, I think. So for me, there was that kind of, that this seems something I'm good at, and that fed in. Could you tell me more about kind of almost your first time in the boat? What was it that was just like, ooh, this is fun? For, for me, it was, it was almost my first time as an adult on a rowing machine and just, it, this, again, certain personality types the effort was precisely metric, the number of strokes per minute, all of those things, just that spoke to me. What was the fun bit for you? No, well, I didn't get on a rowing machine for for a while after. So, I mean, again, I fell in love with rowing in the boat. And actually, the first outing was fairly disastrous. I mean, I, I really, I kept saying to everyone, I'm going to be hopeless. Of course I am, I've never done it before. Yeah. Uh, slightly stupidly on their part they put me at bow because i mean we're all fairly experienced we've got like a you know a student a couple of years old of us who's nominally our coach bless him very lovely guy still know him well um and um but they said yeah, we'll put you at bow and then you can just follow everyone and of course at all the boats as they come out the boathouses you know it's jam-packed along the cam and it's it's kind of you know a crazy sort of just a traffic jam really and as we drifted into the bank i they just said look hold on to your oar don't let it go kind of thing so i was holding on really firmly but of course as we drifted to the bank mine's the first oar to get to the bank so i don't watch anyone else pull those in and suddenly i'm holding on pushing out really firmly as we've been told to do there's a little cracking sound so literally within having you know i don't know 10 minutes of being in the boat i broke the spoon of the oar um and i thought oh my god it's my worst nightmare i am totally crap and uh you know i would have got out at that point but i couldn't quite get it out because obviously you're still stuck from the bank the lovely lovely coach i mean everyone in the boat was just laughing and going oh yeah we didn't tell you you're supposed to pull your oar in when you go towards the bank um and the lovely coach just because we we're only like a few feet from the boat from the boathouse just said i'll go and get you another one you know take it out pass it over um, and went and got another one. So I couldn't get out. So actually, there was a lovely moment of everyone accepting me being hopeless um, and laughing. And then, you know, and then we had the outing to do. Um, for me, I think I had felt left out and unable to get into the team 
um, to, to feel I was part of a team at school. I wanted to, but I felt very incompetent. And, you know, in a hockey field, I'd run away from the ball because it hurt if it hit my ankles. And, and you end up just, you run away from things. Well, actually, I couldn't run away from this. I literally couldn't. Even when I failed on this kind of immediate catastrophic level, they went, oh, here's another all. And you then have to opt in, basically, because otherwise, you know, someone's going to hit you from behind or you've got to keep going. You've just got to take another, you know, you, 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 or dives down, you just get it out and you take another one. And for me, it was that sense of I'm, I'm in a team and I'm opting in. And as soon as I opted in, I had great fun. And I just loved that sense of, you know, I I'd felt so isolated on that hockey pitch and I'd isolated myself very largely. Certainly others hadn't had sort of allowed me to isolate myself, but I had done that. And you can't do that in rowing. You just can't jump out in the water. So you, you have to get on with it. And that was just for me a lovely thing because I wanted to get on with it. I wanted to be part of it. And then I just carried on, you know, however awful it was doing my best in time with others taking note of the water and the environment you're in and i got totally immersed in trying to work all of that out and you know to me to this day for me it's the closest i get to sort of meditating if you like of being really in the moment in a really lovely way where, where do you row now so i'm still a member of marlow that's my club after right. university okay. uh lifelong member uh i live in london um, which I think is part of a sort of ongoing rehabilitation process. My husband is sort of trying to have me not too close to a river, but I do, when I go rowing, go to, to Marlow still, who are always really lovely. And there are four of us, Catherine Granger, myself, Gillian Lindsay and Kate McKenzie. Um, and we, pre-COVID times, went out relatively regularly at, at a weekend and a four. And um, we haven't quite got the habit going again, but we will. So I, I, I just kind of see that as kind of, that's my ideal life future is, is basically just, yeah, right, meet up with, I mean, to, to be honest, I say meet up with the guys, but at the moment, I'm just rowing in mixed boats all the time because I belong to one of the smallest rowing clubs in the country and we've got 24 members. I'm, I'm very, very much moving to this idea of, kind of a lifetime in sport I'm, I'm i'm trying to persuade people that what we should really be aiming for is is masters j world championships um in, a, in about 30 years down the track so i think it's a really interesting sort of success metric which i'm sure this topic will come on to um to think about how long you're in the sport how long you can find a place in the sport and during your life you know for it to play a different role sometimes a social role sometimes a sort of physical health role sometimes a sort of ambitions role and for me that's that's what sport is about it's about a thread through your life it's a community of people and at times you will give your all to it and at times you'll give it in the row in the rowing boat and at times you'll give it as an umpire or a, a whatever it might be a supporter and um, for me that's that's success is when you find a sport you know it doesn't have to be one it can be multiple but when you find um, you know, not a sport that sort of chews you up and spits you out and you say, I don't want anything to do with that again. Lewins, obviously, because you can take the, you know, the man away from the competition, but you can't take the competitive edge out of the man, is is, is planning his, he's going to finally be a world champion at some point in his 80s. And now I turn out for Tyne United, who are a very similar club to Lewins Club at the, at, at the moment. It's a very friendly, outward-facing club. And it's, 
I've kind of realized that I've now had nearly 20 years in the sport, whereas it seems like I only started it yesterday. The break, the break doesn't seem as important as the actual, the line of continuity through. That's lovely to hear. It's really nice to be back on the water. And almost that kind of, that different way of looking at sport seems to be, I mean, if, if, if we sort of bring it on to the long win, which has slightly brought you back into public light again, that kind of different way of looking at things seems to have been like the key thread. Is that, am I right in saying that, that there is? Yeah, I mean, I definitely wanted to rethink sport. I actually wanted to be sort of more ambitious about how we see the role sport can play in our lives and that we broaden it and deepen it and lengthen it. It's absolutely, you know, it's really important to say I'm not against competitive sport in any way because sometimes there's this binary world in which people are thinking either you think we should sort of win an Olympic medal at all costs or it's just medals for all. And I and and there is a huge space to redefine things in a different way. So I do find myself constantly saying I'm absolutely not against the pursuit of excellence in any shape or form. And whether that's in uh, the Olympics or it's in, you know, school events or Henley or, you know, the Masters 70s category at uh, Head of the Charles. Um, absolutely. But I think it is about being really mindful of, I suppose, the, the experience we have along the way, the framework we put around it, the stuff that gives meaning to being involved in sport. And I think it was, I mean, it's something that had, yeah, you know, been bubbling away at the back of my mind for years and years. And actually it was going into other fields and seeing similar issues in business, you know, in education that, that made me look afresh at sport. Um, and it's interesting that in a way it was the, you know, most of my work recently in recent years has been in the working with organizations who have often this obsession with trying to win and, and deeply dysfunctional behaviors as a result that limit them. And that was the thing that was really driving me to write the book was the fact that this is the stuff I'm working with every day and people are building cultures around something that's a myth. They don't really fully understand and can't see that it isn't actually helping them. But it is interesting that the sports world did really quite leap on it. Um, and, you know, it did coincide with, I suppose, the stories coming out of gymnastics, the delayed Olympics and a closer look at culture again. And this period of starting to think this first cycle of, of all the golds we've won, you know, that that sort of reevaluation of, you know, what would have been the good things about it and, and what have been some of the things that, that maybe we don't want to repeat. Partly in the book and partly also some of the things I've heard you talking about is I'll go for the word dichotomy. I'm not sure it's quite right, but you've got the objective idea of success, which is the shining gold medal on top of Mount Olympus. And then you also wanted to bring in the subjective idea of what that means to you by kind of like working out your subjective concepts of success better. It actually is something that takes you closer to the objective measure. Oh, I really like that. I've not heard it described in those terms before. Oh, I really like that. I'm gonna, gonna, yeah, I'm gonna think about that. I'm gonna scribble that down. That sounded good. Yeah, it's really interesting to put it in that sort of objective, subjective uh, framework. Um, I think it, it, you know, for, for me, I thought, I, I just thought about having, you know, success seems to be defined in ever. I, you know, I suppose I see it in temporal time, in temporal ways, you know, in an ever more short term way and transient way. It's it's the moment on the podium. It's the moment crossing the line. It's a moment with a medal around your neck. It's a picture 
of a split second and and then what and that phrase is so persistent of athletes sort of saying what happens now um and 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 finding that deeply you know f- sort of as they fall into a sort of an abyss in many in many cases um so for me it is that stretching the the time with which we define success can it be about more than a moment because surely that's you know it, are we selling a moment to everyone well actually we are in lots of worlds in business worlds and you know in the whole retail world uh you buy an experience you buy a product you know we are often selling things for a moment but that's why we then have all this deep dissatisfaction or the depression or sense of what what really does this mean and so for me it's about making sure that meaning is that moment is attached to something that then goes on and that could be then your you know what what you're describing as that sort of subjective view your own you know on your own terms your values the experience whatever it is that that medal represents that needs to be defined and if you don't define it it it's something that hardly lasts at all and we find you know leads to to really quite a, a sort of downbeat reaction immediately thereafter there's a lot of examples of, of athletes spending their entire life to get to the top of the podium and the medals put around the, the, the oh. neck and they describe not actually being able to feel anything and actually say, well, is, is that it? Just from briefly chatting about your kind of entry to the sport and your progression through it and, your, and also your progression in your professional field, it feels like you were finding things that aligned with your personal values and that were satisfying and fulfilling to you and that they, that they led on that journey towards I guess you'd call them external markers of success, like medals or professional attainments, that helped you to clarify your ideas about what success might look like, what it might feel like, what it might actually mean. The, I, the question I'm leading to is, you, it feels like you may have been building towards putting all of this down in writing. It came out at a very opportune time in, in a, a, a lot of ways. Were you expecting the positive reaction and the and the way that it was uptaken. We had a chat with Tristan McLothing, who's who's uh, currently doing a lot of work in athlete welfare. His feeling was that we were hearing about the stuff with British gymnastics and British cycling and all of the stories that were coming out because we didn't have a games that year. So there was room in the news cycle to move away from the shiny, shiny stuff and actually focus on the on on the the, the, the things that were coming out. Your book kind of landed in the middle of that. Do you think that was a factor in, in the, the, the positivity of the reaction? Yeah, definitely. And and yet it's something I could never have predicted. I mean, I, ironically, uh, I mean, I was writing it for about four years and, you know, there are various delays just from, you know, having so many other things to do. And then a bit of a publishing sort of, you know, delay, cock up, if you like. Um, I had been aiming to get it out, you know, wanting it out before the Tokyo Olympics 2020. And I'm, at one point, you know, because of one of these delays, I, I realised I'd missed the point because, you know, after you hand it in, it's still another six months. And I realised that point had now gone. And I thought, oh, I've, I've been doing this for so long, you know, at the same time as, you know, life and family and work and all of that. I, I just don't know if I can make this happen anymore. Um, so I put it aside for a couple of months and sort of coming into... 2020 then you know some people I'd spoken to along the way were like oh god please you have to do it you have to do it 
get it out there. You know, we need to kind of have this conversation, this debate. And somebody I'd been involved with at a smaller publisher as well, she was like, when's it coming out? And I said, oh, it's not. And she was like, right, come on, we're going to do this. And so, you know, even at that point, January 2020, um, you know, I was thinking, okay, well, let's, let's, you know, well, how's this going to work now? Um, you know, um, what world is this will come in after the, you know, the Tokyo Olympics. Um, so it was, you know, I just had no idea what none of us did, what was around the corner. Um, and so I thought, okay, well, I'm going to pair my work back and, and sort of finalize it, um, you know, March time. And then suddenly the world locked down and I had kids homeschooling and it was like, no, 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 I need peace and quiet to finish my book. This was not the plan. Um, but at that point I could see the world, you know, massively start to shift. So, you know, was, was able to, to add a bit of that into the book as well. But, you know, that to me was such a massive lesson about how we think, oh, this has to happen by this time. And this has to happen by, by this time and how totally meaningless that was. And in fact, there was a far better point that I didn't even know was coming, you know, that, that it would actually sort of emerge into. So of course I didn't know about that. And, and I think that, you know, again, athlete A was a particularly powerful, moments so not just the gymnastic stories but that documentary I felt just you know so many non-sports specialists watched that and were horrified it was so brilliantly put together harrowing but it just showed you how it could happen and people started to recognize that in their own sporting experiences elite and non-elite and so for me, that was also a, a big factor in sort of getting this to more people than would normally look at an article about, you know, elite sporting culture and cycling or, or wherever it might be. We'd had these reviews, but nothing had had as much impact. And then I think you're right with the delayed Olympics. OK, there was a bit more time. I mean, always these these turning points. I hope it's a turning point. It, it's multiple factors, isn't it? You know, we were also coming to this this end of the cycle, I think, of the first sort of a couple of decades of UK sport and ever reevaluation and society changing its view on what's acceptable. You know, whatever you wherever you look, there are reevaluations of culture and whether it's in the Catholic Church and schools. You know, everyone's invited now in the last year again. You know, shining a light on culture. We are going through a shift. We are challenging things that have happened. You know, in in the world that we grew up in and saying actually that's not okay for the future. So there are multiple factors that are shifting at the moment that mean sport can't go back to what it was. And I found that, you know, really a, a kind of, it was a relief to me because I felt sort of in writing some of it that, it, you know, I was being a bit heretical. I was questioning things that I had really grappled with. Um, you know, you, you sort of arrive, I felt very unqualified going into an Olympic environment. You know, I wasn't groomed for this. Uh, you know, I hadn't been a child sports star with all this potential. You know, I just felt I had to swallow whatever I was given. You know, this is the this is the line of the Olympics. You know, you've got to want to win. You've got to want it more than anything else. You've got to prepare to do anything anyone gives you. You know, you, if you doubt any of these things for a second, then you haven't got it. And all of this, I, you know, I kind of wanted to stop and think about uh, you know, right. Okay. I, I think I want it. I'm pretty dedicated and I'm willing to make quite a lot of sacrifices, but you know, may, maybe there are some limits somewhere, but no, we just plow on. I'll do 
anything you ask, you know, I'll give you my soul. And, you know, I was inherently uncomfortable with quite a lot of things that were talked about, but felt I wasn't able to question them or challenge them. And that had niggled away in my mind for a long time. And it had taken me that, you know, getting out into other worlds to, to start to look back and go, I don't think that's right. And, you know, seeing culture questioned in the business world and organizational places and understanding it more that helped me to question it. And then, of course, I found myself questioning at a time when actually, you know, others were, were getting to that point. I'd actually thought I was too late because I thought a whole load of stories came out after Rio about how awful the culture was. And Liz Nickel at the time, who was leading UK sport, had said, you know, things have gone on that shouldn't. So I actually thought I was too, too late. And all of this must have been sorted out in sport because I hadn't been that close to it in the last few years. I've been much more close to the sort of business organisational world. And what I found, of course, was sadly that a lot of things really hadn't moved on. And so the sports world, you know, cried out and many grabbed it to say, you know, we, we've, we've still got to sort this out. We haven't yet. Just to wind back to, um, you talked about feeling conflicted during your, your, your career as, as a rower. And I, I know it's, it's, it's something that I've, I've touched on and in, in I'm writing up the Sculling the Length of the Thames book about the, the, the top-down narrative of rowing is about suffering and pain and wanting it more and being prepared to go, you know, the, the extra mile or the extra session or, and, and all of this kind of stuff. But were you aware during your career of, of the somewhat contradictory nature of this top-down narrative when you, when you, you can read in, in Redgrave's book or in, in Matthew Pinson, you know, Redgrave talks about that on the morning of Olympic finals, finding quiet places in the boathouse to cry and going, just, just get me out of it. I'll do it, but not today. And Matthew Pinson, obviously famous for throwing up on the way to start lines because of nerves, but but the narrative is you, you you have to want it. You've got to embrace the pain. It's how, where actually none of us get into rowing because we want to hurt ourselves. We get into rowing because the feeling of moving a boat on the water is fantastic, but that's not a narrative that comes out. So were you aware of that contradiction between this is what you need to do to win, but hold on, these, these paragons of the sport that are being held up as being, you know, these bulletproof, you know, Redgrave rowing through colitis, diabetes, broken arms, you know, the birth of his children and everything, you know, unstoppable force going off and crying. That contradiction seems to be at the heart of that. Were you aware of it at the time? I don't know that I was aware of how they were responding in those kind of quiet, dark moments that they were having, because, of course, those are not shown to us. None of the coaches knew or showed those to us and, and they didn't feel able to show those to us. So I was very aware of just a completely dominant sacrificial narrative and one that I just tried to bury myself in and at times literally buried myself in and then didn't actually make me go any faster. Um, so it's only really when I started to think, you know, this isn't working too well. You know, I am the last woman standing. I have broken sort of lots of records here but we're not really getting this isn't the whole picture. And so it was only really after too long of going down that route, but, you know, just not being smart enough about performance, really, um, that I, you know, in those last few years, was just starting to think mm, there is another way. And then I think on sort of stepping back, I definitely feel, you know, a bit sad that, that we weren't allowed to enjoy it more. Um, that that was seen as, as as weakness, that we were told you enjoy it when you get on the top step of the podium. And, well, we kind of know that 
in most cases when you say that that's 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 not doesn't happen either and so i feel a bit sad yeah and i, I would like us to put as much effort into recreating into creating a, a different approach and testing that not an easy approach not a soft approach a hard approach but one that is also full of you know support next to the challenge and kind of compassion next to pushing yourself to absolute exhaustion um, and allows those moments of vulnerability where, you, where, you know, the great Matthew Pinson or, you know, Steve Redgrave want to cry that allows that to be, to be, yeah. Okay. Well let's, you know, let, let's embrace that that's who we are and that's okay. And we can still be that gold medal winner and have those moments. You know, I, I'd love us to put as much effort into that as we have for decades into this heroic macho narrative. When you talk about the, the sacrificial narrative and being somewhat uncertain about it, I mean, I'm, I'm going to try and organize this in my head because I'm, I'm thinking very much about Lance Armstrong, who I would say had no limits to the sacrifice. He was absolutely certain that there was, there was one goal. And he would do whatever it took, both physically and morally, to get there. And he would also sacrifice others to get there as well. Yeah. Do you think that just that almost insane, almost pathological confidence, it, it's not necessarily a particularly positive thing? Do, do you think the doubts that you had made you a better sports person? And, 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 or a more sporting person? Well, I, I, Lance Armstrong is just a brilliant example of where that sacrificial thinking can get you and that desire to win at all costs. So um, that is such a, I mean, it, I, I can't even use the word success linked to that. I mean, he really shows how empty winning can be. That is no picture of success. Damaging for him, it's damaging, you know, literally for him, physically and mentally, for his family, for the sport, for the future of the sport, the people that it puts off from coming into the sport. Um, so, you know, that he is the perfect example of how badly wrong this can go and how coming first is just not worth the price that that is paid by him or or the rest of us who who love sport. Um, sure. I mean, why would we try and make athletes be superhuman again? I don't really understand. That doesn't help them. It distances them from the people watching, which actually makes people watching less likely to get off the sofas and do any of the activity because they go, well, I'll never be like that. Um, it, it makes that athlete feel very isolated and then, of course, sets them up for the time when it revealed that, oh, actually, they are human. So I really deeply dislike the the superhuman language that we use um, because it doesn't help either side, the person watching or the person doing it. And so I, I absolutely think we should, we are, you know, when you look at a top athlete, they are extraordinary people doing extraordinary things. They're not superhuman. They are just humans who've found a way to do something brilliantly, uh, but they have all the character flaws and relationship issues and, that everyone else has. And so, we would be ridiculous for to to not see that. Why do we need to try and change that? 
digressing slightly, but we're getting into kind of human psychological pathology here with regards to. So I don't know if Lance Armstrong has ever been assessed, but there's a there's a there's a there's a feeling in what he did of a, a huge amount of self-absorption, bordering on clinical narcissism, uh, in the way that he would he moved he moved things around to get what he wanted out of his life and his world and his sport that reflected well upon himself. Whereas what you're talking about is a more representative human experience that that, e that even extraordinary human beings who do extraordinary things have moments of self-doubt. The alarm didn't go off, the car's broken down, the children need to be taken to school, the, the, the injury, the, 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 the crises moments, the good moments, the highs and lows, which make up the, the whole 360 of a, of a full, enriching and satisfying human life. And that's what makes actually athletes even more powerful as role models if we allow them to be more human, um, if we allow them to to show uh, yeah, the, the full journey. I mean, one of the things I, I mentioned in the book and disturbs me deeply still is this is the fact that we sort of only talk to the winners or we only invite the winners back to schools and things. And, you know, I trained with some absolutely incredible legends of the sport who for them, they weren't in a crew that were able to peak at the Olympics or they had an injury at the wrong time. But I learned everything I know from from training with them and all of the skills that I'm allowed to talk about as, a, as an Olympic medalist that, OK, I learned determination or resilience or whatever it is that the school value is. Well, they had it, too. Just didn't just didn't all come together for them. And I really sort of hate the fact that we somehow what's the message that we're giving to kids that you know, you're all going to win a gold medal. Well, statistically, that's not going to happen. Um, why can't we bring such a, you know, such a, uh, a broader range of people who have done something brilliantly? Okay, they weren't the best in the world, but my God, they, you know, actually they, they just explored their own capacity. They explored what they could do mentally and physically. They were brilliant. They were part of others who were able to do it and they stood on their shoulders to do it. And um, they have a great story to tell. Their story is as good as mine or anyone else's who's got, you know, multiple more medals than, than I have. And I think it's such a shame that we don't hear some of the best stories in sport and beyond and we are losing out and we don't really instill healthy messages in, in the next generation as a result. And that's one of the problems with the way that we've narrated success over this period as being something that we measure in medals, because if, if you don't get one, by default, you you ergo, and, and obviously we're all rowers here, and that was a very bad choice of words, but you you are therefore not successful. And there's a there's a um, wonderful essay by um, a critical theorist called uh, Frederick Jameson called The Sense of an Ending, which which is that every story begins with with a presupposition that it, that it has an ending coming. So when we talk about a Redgrave or a, a Pinson, their success appears inevitable because they did actually get to stand on the top step of the podium. So, so no matter where they started from, it was always going to end there because we know that now looking back. But the reality of it, you know, and even someone like James Cracknell, who's a, a double uh, Olympic champion, it could have ended very, very differently for all of them. And would that made would that have made their lives any less of a, of a success? Not necessarily, because they would have done everything but. And the whole point, the one of the driving things, or one of the driving themes in your book and in in your life, as you've described it to us today, is that 
your success, yes, there were the external markers in terms of the medals and the championship performances, but the things that you were doing were fulfilling you and satisfying you on a daily basis. And that is that is a, a, a metric of success that stands with any gold medal. It is. It's the stuff you learn that you take with you into the next thing you're going to do. It's the stuff that, you know, there's mistakes, there's all those relationships or, you know, whatever it is, that stuff that, that is, is kind of part of you that you take into the next race or the next part of your life. Um, rather than seeing it through the lens, everything's justified because of some very arbitrary outcome that you couldn't control and that had some factors of luck and who knows what else involved in, weather, referees, whatever. Um, I remember sitting sort of at a dinner where Ben Hunt Davis was telling his absolutely brilliant story of Sydney. Love him, I love everything that he does. Will it make boat go faster and love their story? And it is a brilliant story. Um, but I just, you know, as we were clapping at the end, you know, the the sort of chat next to me listening to the listening to the story said, you know, what about what about the others in the race? What about if they tried as hard and they went back to the drawing board and they tried to do it differently too, but they came second or fifth? Um, is that not worth anything? And that was a big, that sort of was one of those moments that was played in my mind because that was some years ago before I started writing the book. And that, that really hung with me because I just felt like I couldn't answer it. Um, and I just thought, yes, yes, that's so important. Um, we don't listen to the others in that race. And yet, they're part of the race. They're part of a name, but the winner can't win unless he's got all the others in the race. But we don't listen to their story and we devalue their story. They might have tried just as hard. You know, if only we could sort of go back and, and kind of measure it all. I've got actually everybody tried to actually these lot, they tried even harder. They were even more innovative here, but it didn't quite pay off. Um, you know, we see it all justified through the end. But it's it distorts it distorts what happens, and so it distorts the value we put on what people have done, the way they went about it, and actually the real value is is what you take from it that's of use thereafter. And I'm always sort of saying to Ben that actually his, you know, his gold medal has allowed him to to find a different way of um, approaching achievement and success, and he shares that with loads and loads of of people across business who are hugely inspired by it. That's that's what his gold medal has enabled that's lasting. And that's the value. It's that, it's the insight. It's whatever you take from it into the next part of your life, whatever that might be. Which is a really important point because the, the gold medal is wonderful. But as Eric Murray, you know, has 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 pointed out, this the chances of you winning one are, are, are few and far between. But even if you do, it's not the end of the journey. It's the thing that should then facilitate what you do next in the same way with 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 Ben has, but also uh, chatting recently to Andy Hodge. You know, yeah. what do, what do I use my medals for now? Well, I use my medals to, to get young people into rowing. And that's they're, they're a lever I, I can pull that will facilitate them going out into their lives with more confidence, with more chance of success as they define it and all of those things. So the medals are, are a, a great marker and wonderful to have and and you know i hope those kids also i actually listened to some of your episode with andy which i i loved and i think he's i love you know the energy and the inspiration he brings to london the throwing is is fantastic but i also hope that those kids are doing it not just to get a medal i th i think we all like bright and shiny things as we've learned or as i've just learned from my partner in pod he's he's planning an assault on the world 90 and over championships so he won an over Oh, sorry. Sorry, I'm a decade what? out. Um, yeah, if, if 
we look at the two sides, I mean, there's also something I wanted to ask you about coaching, but if we look at it from the point of view of the athlete, is that kind of burning desire to win, to be the best, that very egocentric approach to essentially chase after purely objective or external loci of success, shall we say that? Is that something that you mature out of? I mean, it, it, are we just almost faced with a wave 20-somethings and teenagers who can't see that far ahead? Is, is, is one of the ways that this kind of win-at-all-costs mentality arises, is there also a bottom-up push to it? Are we, are we conditioned into it out of school? And, and I think that's very possible that we are bred um, to think that we create value for our parents or our teachers by bringing home prizes and aid grades and certificates. And that's what gets you attention and that's what gets you praise. And in our education system, um, we are very obsessed with rankings and scores and to the detriment of everyone at every level. Um, and we see all sorts of challenges. We, we've in no way managed to close the achievement gap. Um, so we haven't sort of achieved any kind of mobility for having more rankings and metrics. And we're seeing all sorts of mental health issues across independent education as well as the state system. And so I, I think we have a deeply flawed um, education system that does not develop a sense of values beyond that and so it sets us up very much to walk into a world of medals you go oh yeah i get this i get how this works done this with the a grades oh yeah okay i know that i know this system so i think we are quite kind of conditioned for that i think we could be conditioned to value other things i'm, I'm quite curious i don't think there's really enough research around the people that are put off from performance sport who are actually, I think, probably more mature and who go, yeah, I don't need to play that game to prove how good I am. Um, and actually I'm put off by it because I want to have a different experience if I'm going to spend my time on this. So actually I'll go and find either a different sport or a different hobby. And I don't think we've fully understood the people that we lose from sport because they you know, really don't like that fundamental construct. Um, there's an interesting book by psychologist Amy Azicki uh, that sort of really looks at how um, the sort of obsession with winning, you know, comes often from a from a sort of flawed psychological traits, which is sort of what you're suggesting there. That it's, it's not a normal thing to feel you have to go to that to those extents to to deliver enough, you know, to win a gold medal, to be the best in the world. Nothing else is good enough. That's not a sign of a sort of healthy personality. We shouldn't be developing that, looking to enhance the sense of that. Um, and that in itself is a sort of curious situation that we find socially acceptable that is actually full of things that generally aren't socially acceptable. I mean, it, it, you know, it becomes like an addiction, something that in a different world we'd see as not good. Um, you know, that total obsession and addiction to something. OK, if it's for a gold medal, yeah, that's OK. But if it's over here for a slot machine, that's not OK. Um, how different are some of these um, objective loci, as you put it? Uh, you know, there are lots of things there that just feel a bit uh, double standards, certainly, and, and uncomfortable. Um, and 
ultimately, I think we lose people out of sport and we lose that bigger power of sport, that it is a positive mental and physical experience in your life. It sets you up for a healthy life. It connects you. You you belong to a community. That's what we love in rowing, isn't it? It's what we love just chatting about fool's head, whatever, you know, it's just happened, whatever it is. That's that's the piece. That's the piece while we're all still doing it now, you know, beyond our competitive prime, possibly whilst appreciating you still have uh, serious ambitions. Okay, to to extend that idea that there is a potential harbour for quite negative behaviours in competitive and elite sport. If we look at coaching, you you said you received a, a you know the the sacrifice narrative. The we have to give every part of ourselves all the time to the pursuit of this single fixed idea which is a gold medal in 1996 2000 or 2004 is part of that an extension of those negative behaviors is there an issue within coaching that coaching is essentially about people but a lot of coaching is about turning is about trying to turn people into system i think it's about how you define if you like the purpose of coaching is the purpose of coaching to win a medal or is it to develop the potential of that person of uh, you know and a part of their life is that they play this sport you know albeit at a you know very competitive level i'm not saying you shouldn't be playing competitive sport um but i think it's it's really defining actually what are you here to do and i think there is a huge body now coming out in recent years that is about coaching the person. You know, I'm here to create somebody who, who becomes a better citizen. Um, and through that, they succeed in their sport and they're a great role model. It gives them even greater platform for that. But also it's, it, it develops them for whatever comes thereafter. And for me, that's, that's you know, a, a much broader approach that we should be taking. But there are many coaches who haven't entered the coaching world to do that, who aren't qualified to do that, who don't see that, you know, whose whose job descriptions don't include that. Um, and so I think we have got to, yeah, really look at what we want from our coaches, how we develop them, support them. It's an incredibly difficult job because you are so responsible for that whole person's development. And even if you ignore part of that, by default, you are having an impact still on their development as a person. And yet I don't think many coaches sort of, you know, 20 years ago really, really saw that or took responsibility or felt, you know, and nobody asked them about that or, or gave them any sort of sense that they were responsible for developing something beyond a medal winning rower. Um, so I think we're really in a shift there. And that that is quite fundamental. That's going to be about how, you know, coaches come, come into the sport. Um, I see sort of in you know, a lot of the, whether it's, you know, UK coaching, um, you know, national governing bodies, coaching development, you know, there's definitely this, this is a, a live topic. I mean, it's by no means, you know, that one that people are comfortable with or have thought through yet. Again, in schools, you know, I see an engagement with this and, and I think people have found the book useful just to prompt the debate and to really kind of, poke in at the the pointiest elements and say really what what where does this lead and what's the point of pursuing sport in such a narrow way 
um, what's the point of burning out your pupils, your athletes, you know, that in 10 years time, they're no longer in the sport. They don't have healthy lives. What, what have you really achieved if you just win the, the local league the next year? So, you know, I think it's a live debate. Um, certainly, you know, that coaching role, I think coaches have often been quite unsupported. Um, you know, who, who's been leading them, who's been kind of managing them and giving them any other more meaningful metric than if you don't win a medal, you're fired. So that's constrained them, you know, and many have stepped away from the profession who've gone, do you know what, that's, that's not for me. I don't want to work in those circumstances. But that's then sometimes left in the people who are, who are kind of more comfortable with that or who've learned to, to kind of play that game. So we're definitely in this, this sort of transition phase, I think, at the moment. And, you know, every part of the system has, has got to kind of play a role in, in, in shifting this on. Um, and th there's still quite a lot of change needed. This is a bit of a, a sidebar, Kath, but it kind of, and I, I do have questions that I, I really want to ask about, about the book and, and, and certain points in it. But um, just following on from what you just said, do you think that British rowings move its new selection criteria, the committee of coaches um, that were put together under under Brendan Brendan's approach was was an attempt to transition into something more meaningful? And following the backlash against what happened in Tokyo, is that backlash? And well, it has to be about the medals. We spend so much money. Is that almost? stopping that movement into something more progressive and 360 almost at source because it, it didn't quite pay off on on the first bounce uh yeah it's a good question and uh, i mean it i just think it's it, it's too simplistic uh, uh a sort of lens to put you know there's the old way and the new way and the new way didn't work and we go back to the old way you know um I, I, there is no going back because life evolves, sport is evolving, cultural expectations are evolving. And we see that across all the other sports as well. Did we get in a mess sort of in trying to make this transition? Yes. Can we do it quickly? No. And when you're sort of in the middle of that mess, um, it's hard to sort of work out how, how you're going to find the way through. I think there were lots of, um, I think there were, you know, lots of good elements in what was being tried, but you know, incredibly early days of trying them um, against the backdrop of something that was deeply ingrained for decades um, and probably with elements that weren't helping them to work either. So I don't think we've got the sort of the full package right. So I think it's such a complex situation, but do I think every, you know, do I think everything that was, you know, done was wrong no i don't i think there were some some kind of good questions being asked and we need to continue to ask questions um it's you know that no doubt i think we should we've got to try and avoid that you know this is the right way the old way was the right way the new way was the wrong way you know we've got to move on that or beyond that have a bit more of a you know and i'm not really directing that just at you just sort of more generally i think it's so easy to kind of throw stones isn't it and to sort of sit and and this was the thing that was wrong and we should have done this and it's just so so much more complicated now to be to have a successful system there are so many factors involved there are so many variables involved and once you start to sort of throw them up then um you know it's going to take us a while i think to keep developing and to actually be in a developing space we've also got very used to having this kind of monolithic structure that worked for several decades 
that was always going to at some point run out. Now, you could argue it should have stayed to Tokyo or it should have stayed to Pax Fine, but at some point, you know, people would just not be able to carry on their jobs. You know, people would die at some point. There had to be another head coach. There had to be another PD. And, you know, at that point, change, transition happens. And that then takes a long time. And I think we ought to look at rather than what's the right answer, the right person. Actually, how do we get into a place where we can continue to evolve our sport? And we'll constantly be saying, okay, well, we can do this bit a bit better. Now we need to bring the coaching up. Now we need to kind of get the culture going, you know, and, and just appreciate that it's it's a, got so many different moving parts in it. In terms of evolving the sport, do you think there's going to be a significant difference in Los Angeles where we're uh, apparently going to see a 1,500-metre race? Yeah, I think that's a big shock, isn't it? That shock has sent some, some sort of shock waves through part of the sport that haven't, haven't sat up for a while. Um, I do. I do. And I think like anything, it's a, it's an opportunity and a threat, isn't it? It feels kind of hugely destabilizing, but I think it's also a sign that no sport can, can stand still and, and, and hope to kind of retain its place in the Olympics. And, you know, I think there is massive scope for us as a sport to, to modernize, to appeal to more people, to kind of think about a much broader offering that includes, you know, what we're all used to in the standard sort of club offering, but also think about how we could use technology in different ways, think about how we could kind of bring it into people's homes in different ways. And we've just started to tinker, haven't we? We've just started with these, you know, whether it's Zoom ergos or ladders or whatever it might be, we're just exploring, but I think there's lots more to go in that direction. And, you know, I'm kind of, we've got to evolve or we will die as a sport. No, I, I agree. I was... I was quite surprised at the level of surprise because realistically, I think this has been telegraphed for since 2013, where, you know, the IOC came along and said, you know, you can use natural features if it makes more sense. But the, the, the 2K rowing lake was at some point, yeah, sorry, we're not doing this anymore. Yeah, I, I mean, I, I like the idea. We, we had a chat with Steve Saylor um, and he had the, all these ideas from that you could translate from cross-country skiing where they changed the format of it and they changed the courses and they had essentially con almost continuous relays. So it was almost like a 3,000-meter race that was just constructed of um, 500 meter shuttles. So they just constantly handing off from one another. It's like six times. Um, I'd love to see something like that. I'd love to see maybe three crews just going backwards and forwards over 500 meters. That's something that, um, and I use the word conservative with a small C and, and uh, in Britain as well, because of the kind of the nature of the club system and the way it's historically and they've historically and culturally evolved. We tend to look at change as being, you couldn't possibly, it's always been 2,000 metres, it just simply has to be. 
And the reality is when you look at other sports, they are constantly evolving. And if they didn't constantly evolve, then they, they wouldn't be part of the, I, the IOC program. I mean, speaking personally, I am over the moon about it because my 1,500 meter time was always way better than my 2K. So I, I could still have a chance here. I, I could be heading down to Caversham even as we speak. I mean, that just shows how arbitrary it is, isn't it? 2K suits some people, doesn't suit everyone. And who yeah. said 2K was right? Some arbitrary bloke at some point in some committee meeting. You know, we just, we make it that that's the be all. You are the kind of legend of all time. If you could do this particular difference on this particular day, you know, it's it's great to have competitions. It's great to have traditions, you know, but let's not kind of extrapolate some kind of huge world meaning from it. It's arbitrary. It's arbitrary. We have three medals. You know, if we had four, then we'd all be happy that we got loads of fourth places in Tokyo. And it's, it's very arbitrary. And we need to think about a little broader. Luna and I have talked about this previously. Rowing isn't isn't a it's it's not a hobby sport. It's not like you know you you were a footballer at school, so on on a Wednesday you go and play five a side with your mates and then have a pint you know at the local club, or you you're in the local squash league and you play on Thursdays and Saturday mornings when the when the kids are are, are doing gymnastics or whatever else. Rowing, if you're in it, it's a it's very much a lifestyle choice because it demands so much, and because it's a lifestyle choice. We identify with it, uh, uh, you know. We identify ourselves as rowers, and we take pride in the sheer volumes of work that we do while also holding down full-time jobs and all of the rest of it. And Lou and I have certainly joked about, the, you know, the three things that you're asked when you join a new club. It's not your name, where do you come from, and what do you do. It's what's your two K score, what side do you row on. Great, either you're a threat to me or you're not, or I'm faster than you, or, 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 or I'm not. And then maybe the third question might be, and, and by the way, what's your name? Nice to meet you. We do have a lot tied up with our identity as rowers, don't we? We do. And I, and again, I wonder if that excludes people, you know, from trying out the sport. I thought the third question was going to be how many times a week <laughs> will you train? <laughs> like, will you turn up? Because, you know, there's a lot, isn't there, in that I do every session. I'm there every day and I do double sessions at the weekend. You, know, you don't yeah. miss any because you let the crew down. So there's there's a lot in just literally how many times you turn up kind of thing. And and there's a lovely thing about belonging. There's a, there's a lovely mm. element to that. But there's also a slight sort of, you know, you, 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 know, you, you mustn't miss it. You mustn't have something else in your life that could possibly be more important. Um, and so, again, I think we, we don't allow people to kind of enjoy enjoy the sport in the way they want to access it. It's really great to be on the river. It's really lovely. I mean, I have enjoyed rowing in sort of latter years almost more than before. We're still quite competitive. You know, we go to the Charles and, you know, it's not like we're just dawdling. We're still trying to improve our technique. We're still trying to then land train in the week to get faster. So there's an element still of, of, of that kind of competition, but it's all in perspective as well as just really treasuring, you know, being part of the community and getting together as, as old friends. And, and I felt that sort of almost it's taken this long for that to become more in balance. Um, so it's that sort of balance element. It's, it's actually sort of allowing someone to come in and go, I really like the sport, but I only want to go out twice a week. Oh, well, you can't be in a scene. You can't be in a performance squad. We, we won't get best access to boats. And um, Oh, well, you're not really serious. So you're not a real rower, are you? Yeah. Um, we rank ourselves and we rank others by the the amount we're willing to endure to do the sport. Whereas, you know, earlier in the conversation, you know, why do you like rowing? Because I really enjoy moving a boat. That should be the first criteria. Well, you're a rower then, not well, you're you're a real rower if your 2K score is this or if you do if you do your 26 hours a week 
training or you do whatever else. And it, it is a, I think we're very proud of what we've achieved in this country um, as a rowing community, uh, which you know, you've obviously been a huge part of on the rowing lakes of the world. And that feeds back into how we feel about ourselves. But as Loon and I have, have also talked with people like Jack and, and Andy recently, since Rio, we've seen our participation numbers start to do this. And maybe that is because we demand so much. Well, you're a real rower if, well, actually, you're a real rower if you just get in a boat and go for a paddle yeah. once or twice a month, if you can. You know, the danger is we lose someone who this time of this time in their lives, they haven't got time to do it more than once a week. But actually, in two years time, then they're ready to turn up seven days a week. But you've just lost them because you poo pooed them for wanting to go out twice a week. And and I think that for me is, you know, it's a real problem. It's actually a problem for the the sort of depth and longevity of the sport. It's a problem for the national governing body. Uh, you know, we, we need to have kind of a, a healthier sport. We want more members. We want a more diverse um, kind of community. And, and, you know, again, we're not quite facing extinction, but I think we are closer to it than we should be, want to be, and need to think about what we need to do differently. We've kind of strayed away from talking about the long win, which in a sense must I, I presume that's refreshing because you've basically become a superstar over the last year and you've appeared in all sorts of different places talking about the boot and deservedly so because it, it really, I know you said you, you felt like you'd missed its slot, but it seemed to just resonate so much with what's happened over the last 18 months. Looking at the boot, the, the, the messages and the lessons and the ideas are obviously drawn from, from more than a sporting life. They're drawn from across the entire trajectory. Um, and if I'm wrong, then correct me, but I got a sense of almost best practice looking back or, or, or lessons learned looking, looking back. Because it's drawn from so many different areas of your life and so many different experiences, can you identify moments um, maybe where particular lessons were indelibly learned? So maybe where it came really came home to you that a clarity in, in identifying your purpose or meaning for doing something was more important than just hitting a short-term performance goal, for example? I mean, I think, you know, in, in rowing terms, the sort of crisis for me of coming ninth in Sydney was the the moment where I suddenly felt that this, I've done everything that was asked of me and it, you know, I, it hasn't, hasn't done me any good and I don't want to do it anymore. Um, you know, I almost felt like I couldn't challenge it until I'd sort of seen it through. And then I'd, I was, you know, really uh, ready to challenge it and question it. And I knew it hadn't been right. Um, you know, maybe some level there was, there was a sense, you know, I, I kind of um, almost didn't want to succeed in that way. Um, I mean, certainly not consciously at all. And I think that it released me from it, though. I mean, it was hideous and a torment, but it also made me think, Do you know, what? I've, I've got to challenge this. I've got to find a different way or... Uh, you know, really think about what, what I've been going through because that just wasn't a, a, an experience that I'd want to kind of replicate in any other part of my life. And I'd like to think there was a different way to, to go to an Olympics again. So, you know, that was a massive, you know, crises always are, aren't there? A time when you get different feedback and you listen to people differently and you think differently and you get some different perspectives and you step back. So that was definitely the beginning of all of this re-evaluation and no longer taking things on, you know, lock, stock and barrel. This is what you have to do. This is what you have to think, will to win, go and do everything. You know, at that point, I, I never quite, uh, I, you know, I allowed myself to question things thereafter. And, you know, I wish I'd questioned things sooner, although 
possibly there wasn't any space to question them. I think the um, the sort of learning piece was really then part of that new psychology that came in with Chris Shambrook, who who became the um, the performance psychologist for so long and and who helped us to get this sense of um, you know you're always moving forward, you're always learning, even if you have a bad result, you're always gaining something from it, and and that was just such a relief psychologically to not have to beat myself up for being a master failure if I lost a race, but go do you know what this bit you did quite well so let's let's not lose sight of that this is the bit isn't going so well and you're just creating that sense of you know your race you learn you move on your race you learn you move on you know and actually regardless of whether you you win some of the races but you learn and move on you lose some of the races but you learn and move on and i've just always found that so helpful um and so i think that was you know definitely a kind of turning point in just starting to enjoy it and feeling momentum feeling i'm moving forward I don't yet know where I'm going to get to, but I'm moving forward and we'll see where that ends up because who knows how steep the learning curve is, but let's just work on the next bit. Um, I think I've sort of kept that as, as part of a, just a useful way of navigating the highs and the lows and the ups and the downs of things that get thrown at you. Um, but I think I've sort of often seen either in a sporting environment or in a sort of organisational world that sometimes people are just so fixed in how they're assessing um, success and failure, but then they lose the learning. They say they're performance minded. They say they want to get better. They say they want to win, but actually that, that sort of outcome obsession obscures the learning from all the things that, that were happening along the way. You know, you almost want to sort of freeze things sometimes. So you don't know what the outcome is. Now tell us what, what you think has been good and, and not so good. And you get such an honest answer there and people aren't able to be as honest when they look back through the the lure of well it all worked out so it, i must have been great or you know actually it didn't work out so i'm a complete failure um and people still look through that lens too much sorry it doesn't flow very well through because yeah we are a couple of chances but um could I ask about the indoor rowing machine? Was it something you enjoyed? <laughs> I mean, I, 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 mean, I literally found out about this about two and a half hours ago. I didn't realize just how repeatedly successful you were at the British Indoor Rowing Championships. That you just like, oh yeah, I'm gonna turn up, I'm gonna win, I'm gonna turn up, win, turn up, win. And I think the only other person who's done anything like that in the UK is Debbie Flood, who kept on turning up to the English Indoor Rowing Championships, sat down, won the race, then handed out medals afterwards, which was really nice of her. Um, was it, were rowing machines an enjoyable part of sport for you? No, uh, I can confirm, uh, which, you know, uh, yeah, I, it's not it's not something I talk about a lot because um, people will really worry about my personality if I did. Um, I mean, it's interesting going back to that sort of learning to row piece, getting into the boat at, at university at Cambridge. Um, I'd never been on a rowing machine and actually kind of a couple of weeks in, I was in the second novice crew. I was in the middle of the crew now, not a bow anymore. Uh, and they said, oh, actually, you know, you're quite tall. Obviously, you know, a bit of power coming on those puddles. 
let's just see whether you should be in the first novice boat. And they put me on an ergo. I'd never been on one before against another girl and I lost the ergo contest. I mean, I, I don't think I had, you know, had zero technique or something, but, um, you know, again, that was sort of one of those moments. I was like, oh, I'm no good on the rowing machine. Um, I, I mean, you know, I, I was decent on the rowing machine, but I suffered as much as anyone else in terms of nerves. And I found those ergo tests that we did and those competitions at Reading, some of the most sickening moments. I love being in a crew. Um, I'm not a particularly happy single scholar. I wanted to be in a crew and I found that the, the joy and that I could manage nerves if I was with someone because I wanted to do it for them and not let them down and just get on with things. And I, you know, I literally can remember driving down the A404 kind of bypass to Bisham Abbey thinking if I crash my car, um, I wouldn't have to do it. And then thinking, but they'd still make me do it when I'd sort of, you know, if the car wasn't totally written off, um, they'd probably still make me do it an hour later. Honestly, I had that. That's how sick I was about them, even though I did very well in them. And I always felt... Um, I was one stroke from getting off, but I never got off. Okay. Um, and, you know, I did, I did well in them. It was a strength for sure for me. And I think we were told to go to those, we had no choice, but to go to those competitions. Um, and that was, you know, part of the, the process back then, that part of the trialing competition or the coach wanted, wanted me to go. Um, and I feel sick sort of just thinking about it. And then to actually get on an aeroplane and fly to Boston to do an ergo, how kind of totally mad is that? Um, I think it was the one, I don't know if it's the first time I'd been to America or something. How, I mean, it's just completely bonkers to go to the indoor rowing machine and that, the indoor rowing champs. And that's like this massive room. And I'd seen, I'd never seen so many ergos in one place. And um, that was just sort of utterly terrifying as well. And I remember like Fran Houghton was there because she was doing the juniors. And so she only had one race, whereas I had to do a qualifying race and then a, and then a final. So I had to do it like twice and bless her. She was, so I think she'd done the juniors quite early on. I think she'd won and um, bless her. She was like running around the room trying to like give me a sense in the heat of how hard to go to get in the final. <laughs> And then I was like, oh, my God, I've, you know, but you have to go reasonably hard, don't you? And then I was like, you know, I've, oh, God, I can't do this again. And bless her, she was a junior. She was like 17 or 18. I was going, I can't do the final. I can't do it. I can't do it again. Oh, my God, I can't go like, I can't go like even, you know, hot. I'm going to have to go hard and I'm just gone. I'm just done fairly gut-wrenching one. It was like maybe, you know, maybe it was like eight seconds off what I'm going to do or something. But I've now got to do another one like a few hours later. Bless her, she's giving me this pep talk. And um, she stood behind me and shouted all the way. Thank you, Francis. Um, and got a hammer though. I still have the hammer somewhere. Exactly. Wow. It is quite a cool prize. You don't get a medal, you get a metal hammer, a silver hammer. Yeah, no, no. Um, no, I, I, I know um, a couple of people who've, who've picked them up and I'm, I'm really very envious. Uh, again, that, that's, the, that's the long plan, the, the 70 plus prize. I'm just going to wait until everyone else has quit. Um, <laughs> I did have a moment sort of last year, like in lockdown, where I thought, you know, I used to be quite good on the rowing machine. Let's have a fitness. Let's let's get a bit fitter. Let's have a look at some of these age group records. And, you know, like how, how hard can it be? Um, and I thought, mm, quite hard. I'd probably have to train <laughs> twice a day to do that. That's not happening. 
Yeah, no, there, there, there are some. We, we've spoken to a few of the, uh, the age group record holders and they're fairly fierce, fairly fierce. I think it's an interesting perspective, though, because Lewin asked you that question because he genuinely loves the Erg. He genuinely, even now, he still genuinely loves it. And I, before before 2Ks or 5Ks or 30-minute tests, but particularly 2Ks, because so much importance was attached to them at Agecroft and in any rowing club and in any kind of performance environment, I'd start feeling worried about it about 10 days out, and it would just get worse and worse and worse until the actual day. And Loon and I have just had a recent chat about it. I kind of got over the fear of it by basically, I did one every Wednesday afternoon for 12 weeks until it was just like another session. But it still used to fill me with a sense of, oh my God, I've got to do well in this. My seat depends on it. Everyone's going to be watching. But if you actually put me in a race, um, in a boat, in a crew with my friends, with my crewmates who, who I wasn't going to let down, who I couldn't wait to you know back them up and to, and to do well, no nerves at all. Just, just couldn't wait to do it. Whereas mm. the Erg just used to send me into paroxysms. Yeah, I would have to massively plan them. I tried to kind of hugely give myself a plan, really just stay on the ten strokes you're on, or even the five strokes you're on. Um, you know, I found a way. I found a way to navigate them, and I just never wanted to stop on them because I could see that just the nightmare that that would kind of you know, lead to. Whatever you do, don't stop, even if it's a shocker, just you can get through this. But people never seem to come back from stopping. Yeah, I mean, it's interesting also that because I was very, I was very good at them. I was, toward, you know, I was at the, consistently towards the top of the rankings or at the top of the rankings, but I still found it really hard. And it's funny how people almost just assume that that wasn't the case, um, that if you were doing well, you wouldn't find it hard. But I think it is... Yeah, I mean, you just, you know, there are different parts of the sport and they, some people love being in the gym, lifting weights. Some people, you know, I just, I love being on the river and a crew. That's what, you know, I just found the the reason for me to be doing the sport. Um, but yeah, I mean, there are some real erg monsters out there. They have their place. <laughs> yeah, it's just, it's not in a boat, Lewin. And I, I say that having rowed with you for, you know, no, I'm kidding. I'd, 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 I love rowing. I really enjoy rowing with Lewin and I really miss the fact that he's in Canterbury and I'm in Newcastle and it doesn't, it doesn't happen nearly enough. Um, just to kind of come back to some of the ideas in The Long Win, E.M. E. Forster wrote about a century ago now about the need to only connect. Connection is everything. We've been through a pandemic where connection has been, I mean, we've done it on Zoom calls and Skypes and what have you, but actual human tangible connection has been missing in our lives for a long time. But it's it's central to what you are talking about. You you prioritize in the in the book and in the way that you talk about um, your rowing career, but also the other things that you've gone on to do, the need for cooperation and collaboration above um competition and transactional approaches and you've emphasized the the need for those authentic mutually supportive relationship rather than simply transactional ones where it's well what can you do for me if i can do this for you was there a was there any one singular moment in this life trajectory that we're kind of sketching out that where you realized this or was there an, an event or an action or an incident that actually triggered this realization and it slowly germinated I think all the way along in what could be what were some quite difficult experiences in those kind of early Olympics, the thing that I 
loved and treasured and the thing that helped me to keep going was just incredible people that I was with and that became lifelong friends so that was always a massive thread even if I didn't sort of necessarily consciously clock that all the time but it just was that that was the reason to get up the next morning and I think you know the longer I kept going the more I valued that I you know I now just I love that how many crews have reunions, whether it's boat race crews or Henley crews or whatever race it is that we've done, you know, Maidenhead Regatta, 500 meter mixed eight. Um, also great fun. Um, you know, when, when we get together, we, you know, you don't, you don't turn up to you with your medal and go, Oh, look, you know, how's it looking? How's the ribbon on your Olympic medal looking? <laughs> you know, you, you just connect, don't you, for all, you actually laugh about those crazy moments on training camp. And do you remember that moment when? That is just exactly what it's about. I love listening to other teams. You know, I had the privilege to, to know and to, to meet various of the hockey girls in the GB team at Rio in London. And, you know, I love kind of, they had such a strong culture. I love listening to them connect again. You know, that, they kind of relive winning the gold medal. They chat about funny moments, things they went through. Do you remember the time when? And that's what's that's what has longevity. That's what kind of lasts now. Of course, the you know the the pursuit of the medal was a part of it. I don't want to take that out of it, but I don't want that to be seen in isolation without this really important human connection around it, which is that's what lasts that's what you remember later in life that's what you value that has increasing value as possibly the medal has decreasing value um as somebody else has a new one or a shinier one and you put it in the perspective of your life the relationships only increase in value and that's a rather lovely thing and something to perhaps value sooner rather than later and to consciously invest in yeah i mean to be honest because Bloon and I come from academic and, and slightly wordy backgrounds, and, and as we keep pointing out, we're chances at this, we've got tons more questions that we could ask. And we usually ask things, you know, what's British rowing doing well? What could it do better? Where are we going as a sport? But I mean, that felt to me like a wonderful place to leave it because that's exactly why we love this sport and why it works so well when it works, surely, Bloon, or have I got it wrong in my typical Northern way again? No, this time, this time, I'm gonna, I'm gonna let you pretend that you've got it entirely right. Um, no, that that is basically why there is. I I can't leave the sport essentially. Whatever else I try and I do, I'm a little bit lost if I don't have a boathouse. Yeah, I mean, it's, it, it's definitely one of the drivers that encouraged me to sort of get involved with Love Rowing, you know, with the, the kind of new charity, just because it, you know, it is what it says on the tin. Um, you know, I think when you have contact with the sport, you can fall in love with it. And it doesn't matter whether you're an Olympian or whether you're someone who goes out once a week. And there's a place for everyone. And I want more people to be able to experience that. And that is the, the power of rowing. Yeah. Is there anything else you would like to flag up, Kath? I mean, you've, you've just mentioned love, love rowing, but anything else with regards to your work or any other initiatives that you're involved in that we can foreground to our one listener who downloads it 250 times every fortnight? 
No, I mean, you know, obviously we're, we're kind of a new charity. There's loads of good work already happening um, with, you know, all the stuff. And it was talking about London Youth Rowing and, and just really excited to be able to play a, a role to be, you know, there, there are still so many parts of the country that don't yet have access and schools, you know, increasing adaptive rowing. So, you know, really encourage people to sign up to the newsletter, find out what we're doing. Uh, you know, if your club is involved in outreach activities, then, you know, connect a bit more if we can support anything that you're doing now or in the future then uh you know we're, we're just at the beginning of, of of trying to really build some momentum thank you so much for coming on for putting up with us um and for just being i think loon would agree with me for once absolutely wonderful thank you so yes. much it's been brilliant thank you Great to be here. I'm very impressed. We've had Friedrich Jameson. I, you know, we've had what was it? You know, multiple. You know, Ian Forster. Uh, you know, gosh, thank you for for <laughs> seriously raising the tone. It was a pleasure. These are the only English literature quotes that I actually know, uh, and I, I have a PhD in it. What can I say? Fred Jameson and E.M. Forster, that's my limit. 